It is sharing the company's financial information with everybody in the company. So we share the profit and loss statement. Um, we share the balance sheet. We share the statement of cash flows. It's based on the tenant that the intelligence of the group is greater than the intelligence of any one individual. And that if we share all that information, people will make better decisions. This is Swarfcast. I'm Noah Graff. Our guest on the show today is Reed Leland, founder and president of Leanworks, a precision machining job shop in Ogden, Utah. Leanworks operates using open book management. This means the company shares its financial information with all its employees on a regular basis. Reed says this transparent management style makes its employees aware of how their performance impacts the company's success. They feel accountable to not only work hard, but work more intelligently in a way that benefits the company the most. Today's podcast is brought to you by Graf Pinkert. Looking for a screw machine, rotary transfer machine, or CNC machine? Graf Pinkert's got you covered. When you're buying any used machine, you're taking a risk. So it's important to buy from someone who knows their stuff and who is going to give you straight information about what you're buying. Graf Pinkert is a family-owned firm that's been dedicated to selling great machine tools to the turn parts industry for 75 years. It specializes in the top multi-spindle brands, including Index, Schutte, Gildemeister, Tornos, ZPS, Acme, and Wickman. They also sell a variety of other types of used equipment, such as CNC Swiss, CNC turning centers, and parts washers. Machine tools are complicated. If you're going to buy one, you should go to people who are knowledgeable and committed to the industry. Learn more at www.graffpinkert.com. That's www.graffpinkert.com. I am honored to be with Reed Leland, founder and president of Leanworks in Ogden, Utah. Welcome to the show, Reed. It's good to be here, Noah. Thank you. This is fantastic to have you. You are going along with our current season about maintaining employees, finding employees, because what we're going to talk about today is open book management. You don't run into it very often. I hadn't heard of it, actually, until I was recommended to talk to you. So that's one of the things we're going to go into today. So just to get started, give me the scoop on Leanworks. What do you guys do? Well, Leanworks is a precision machining uh, job shop. We serve aerospace, defense, space, battery tech, uh, some energy, kind of high-tech industries, and um, we have about 35 people. We've been in business since 2003, and uh, we've gone through several ups and downs in in our 18-year history. We're resilient. Well, you got to be resilient over over 18 years. Yeah, yeah. Well, I you know I started the company in 2003 and had one machine and learned how to as a degreed engineer. I did not have a background in machining, but I bought the machine and learned how to run it. And, uh, and then started growing the business. And, and I really fell in love with the business aspect of it. And then having the failure is not an option. You know, 2009 was our first crisis and we, that, that was really tough on us. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that. But um, 
now that I, you know, now that I have a little bit of background on MeanWorks, give me your brief story, the, the three-minute bio. I was born and raised and went uh, kind of all over the West Coast, uh, Phoenix, Arizona, uh, Northern California, and ended up going to high school in Washington State. Uh, I played football and I got recruited to play football at Weber State. And so I played football there. And uh, while I played football, I ended up getting a degree in mechanical engineering technology. And uh, I, I wanted to save the earth. I was a tree hugger. And I went on to get a master's degree from University of Oklahoma in environmental engineering, which is a subset of civil engineering. I worked in that field for a little while, uh, ended up, strangely enough, back in Utah uh, after my graduate degree, working at Hill Air Force Base on a site that needed to be cleaned up and um, decided I didn't like cleaning up messes. Uh, I wanted to do something that was more aligned with the front end stuff. So I ended up getting a job at this company called Setpoint. Uh, worked my way up. It was a company that designed and built industrial, custom industrial automation equipment. And I loved it and was kind of cut my teeth in my early professional career there as an engineer and then as a manager became the general manager of the automation division the owners had gone on and started a division building uh, designing and building roller coasters of all things hmm. and so anyway uh ended up partnering with the owners of setpoint to start leanworks at, because they outsource a lot of machining and uh, they wanted to they saw an opportunity there and so that's how LeanWorks came to be. And I learned how to run machines and make parts. And we've kind of not looked back. Very interesting. The format that you use is open book management. And you learned that at Setpoint, yes? That's correct. Yeah, the owners of Setpoint had, were uh, two friends, Joe and Joe, Joe Cornwell and Joe Vandenberg. And they worked together at a company called Aerodynamics that designed and built roller coasters. And they did not like the way that company was run. And they had read this book called The Great Game of Business, which is Jack Stack's story at Springfield Remanufacturing Corporation of how he bought the plant there. How long ago was that? Was Jack Stack? So, yeah, they started Setpoint in 91, 92. So that's, and I was like the second or third employee. They, they were moonlighting. They were still working at aerodynamics and, and they were moonlighting with Setpoint. They, they were selling. When was Jack Stack? Oh, so the book came out, I think in the 90 or 89 or something like that. And I think it was the story of his early to mid eighties. And it's called the great book of business. The great game of business. Great game of business. Okay. By Jack Stack. Yeah. So he is considered the grandfather of open book management. I think so. Yeah. And there's an annual conference called the great game conference and people come from all over. I've been to it and they talk about how they implement open book management in their company. All right, cool. So now we've mentioned open book management a gazillion times and a lot of our listeners are going to be wondering what the heck it is. So give me the nitty gritty on open book management. What is it? Uh, Well, it's sharing the company's financial information with everybody in the company. So we share the profit and loss statement. Um, we share the balance sheet. We share the statement of cash flows. Uh, and we have regular process by which we share all that information on a regular basis. It's based on the tenet that the intelligence of the group is greater than the intelligence of any one individual. And that if we share all that information, people will make better decisions. 
and uh, and then we have a profit sharing plan based on on how profitable we are. And so the three tenants. What are the three tenants? So the three tenants are you share the financial information. You have to train everybody. So uh, we have a rigorous training program where we train on the income statement, the balance sheet, the cash flow. We train on uh, we train on ratios. We have a balance sheet ratios. Uh, module, a cash flow cycle modules, you know, so people understand that uh, profit is theoretical, but cash is real. And then we have a module on that kind of ties in the fundamentals of our business and how our performance feeds through and makes the financial statement numbers. So it's essentially the ultimate score of whether we're winning or losing are the financial statements. Very interesting. All right. I got all kinds of questions. Um, a lot of devil's advocate here. Many people are numbers people and business people, and many people, their brains are more specialized for other things. For, you know, maybe they're a great engineer or a great setup person, yet they see a bunch of numbers and they go, eh, like this is not my thing and I don't want to have anything to do with it. I love my job, I love doing what I do, I am talented but I don't want to bother with that. So how do, you, how do you handle that? That's a great question, Noah. The truth of the matter is that open book management isn't for everybody. And that does become a good filter. If people want to come to work and punch the clock and not really know how the company's doing or aren't um, interested enough to understand what creates the healthy company, they just want to focus on doing their thing, then they probably aren't going to fit. Well, what if they do care, but they just they're just not inclined for it. That's fine. I'm sure that's the case with a lot of our, our folks. You know, they- You have 35 employees? Yeah. We've been as high as 60 through ups and downs. And so we, we certainly do run into a lot of people that fit culturally and they're good performers and they may not be completely enthusiastic about when we share the numbers. That's okay, but they go through the training and I do think it increases their awareness of- how their performance impacts the results. So we do quizzes and things like that, you know, that ask questions about, we scrapped so many parts on this job. If we would have cut our scrap rate in half, what would that have done to the profitability of the job? How would that have affected the monthly numbers? What if we were able to do that across the whole shop? How would would that have impacted your bonus? Things like that. So, so it makes people really work together, theoretically. They feel like they're a unit. Well, I hope so. But I think what it really does is it illuminates what is productive and what is not. Because I'm picturing like there's going to be too many cooks in the kitchen and people are going to be like, you know, why the hell did you let go of this customer? They're one of our best customers. Or why are you, I mean... I see there being a lot of issues, but clearly 18 years and you've done well. So are these obstacles you're constantly dealing with? I don't think so. I'm going to address a couple points. One point is I give credit to open book management for why we've survived. So we've had three, what I consider three existential crises, you know, 2009, which was across the board we were heavily concentrated in oil and gas coming out of that. So when oil and gas tanked in 2015, it was a long, prolonged downturn in that industry for 15 and 16, most of 17. We would have definitely gone out of business if we weren't open book management then. And then, of course, the most recent crisis 
last year with COVID. But uh, see, I would have thought 2009 when things were going horribly, you'd get some panickers. I guess it'd be a time where people would either come together or people would be driven apart. Well, I, here's how it impacted us. The complete transparency because of our open book processes, we were sharing the, the financial results of the company. We, we have a process which we create a daily profit and loss statement for the shop. We know if we made or lose money every day. Then each week we get together as a company, we call it our weekly huddle. And we talk about what happened throughout the week and how that was impacted the numbers, the income statement basically. And we would be able to have conversations like, uh, you know, we're losing X amount of money every week. If we can't write the ship and get to break even by August, we're gonna be out of business by September. And we had those conversations and we saw, we were headed right for the cliff and we saw it coming four months away. We could show exactly where we were on that path every week. And so even though it was scary and people, you know, morale was bad, but, but it was honest, right? And, and so- And did you lay anybody off? We had a layoff in 2009. And people understood it because obviously they saw what was happening and they knew we needed to cut costs to get to break even. Right, right. But nobody quit. That was what was humbling to me. Nobody quit. We kept our best people. And um, why would people quit in 2009? Well, because they saw the company headed for the cliff now. But everybody was headed for the cliff. So I think people would want to preserve their jobs. That's true. That is true. And that may very well have been a factor for why nobody quit. But at the same token, we were very open and transparent. And there were there was at least one shop I know of in the area that had some government contracts that did pretty well through that. But we didn't lose anybody. And uh, so it was humbling to me. But you're right. It was There wasn't a lot of places to go. But there were some. And they could have taken a shot at it. So we didn't lose anybody. So I, I think it helped us make it through. Now, to your other point, too many cooks in the kitchen and people second guessing your decisions. I don't mind that. You're getting to a point, uh, an aspect of open book management that is absolutely true. And that is it creates a super transparent, flat organization. There's no hierarchy. Even though there is on the org chart, there really isn't in reality. So accountability flows as fast up as it does down. And when I make mistakes, it's out there for everybody to see. And people call me on it. And that's okay. You have tremendous chutzpah to be able to do that, to be transparent, to show what's going on. And my fear, I guess, would be that people might misinterpret data because even really smart people can, I mean, they make a living twisting data. It's true. It's true. And so I have to, uh, we do have to do the training so that we have a consistent interpretation of the numbers. And then when things are interpreted differently, uh, we have to talk about it. We have to talk it through. And it might feel like or seem like we have to spend a lot of time on that, but we don't. We really don't. So you believe that that really held you together in 2009? Um, yeah. You feel like the quality of the work is better or often better because of your system. When you say the quality of the of the output of our people, you mean? Yeah, well, at least like maybe they're efficient and maybe they care more, they take more care in making great parts because they want to satisfy the customers. You're getting to a point that I call uh, psychic ownership. So when we share all the numbers like that and ultimately we share the profits, we set a threshold and if we're over the minimum threshold of profitability, 
the extra percentage of any profit over that goes into a profit sharing pool and we share it. So uh, it creates a kind of a cycle. Uh, yeah. So there's a profit sharing plan. Yeah. And do you invest, you invest the profit sharing plan? No, we, it pays out monthly. We try to match the performance to the reward as closely in time as possible. So, so we have what we call our GP over OE ratio, this gross profit over operating expense. If that ratio is one, we're break even. If it's over one, we make money. If it's less than one, we lose money. And we have we calculate that ratio shop-wide every day. And at the end of the month, if the month-to-date number is over 1.2, at the current size of the shop, we take $300 for every 0.01 greater than 1.2 and put it into a pool. And then we calculate based on your percentage of the straight-time wage uh, what percentage you had, and then you get that percentage of the pool. So we've had pools in the tens of thousands of dollars, and we paid, you know, seven or eight or $900 bonus checks in a month. And so, I mean, that's a pretty good deal. Now, there's stretches where we go months and months without a bonus check too. So, I mean, there's 35 people. It's a lot of people, and it's really not a lot of people. So they feel like what they're doing, it's not just about getting their bonus. It's about making the company successful. You think it gives people purpose in that way? A little bit. That That is one of the perceptions that initially most people have is that, you know, the promise of bonus is going to increase engagement and drive performance higher. No, I, I actually think that after research, I've heard the purpose doesn't necessarily come from the selfish getting more bonuses. I, I guess it depends on where people come from and people's personalities. But I would think it's more they're seeing how the company is doing and in that way it would give people purpose. I agree with that. I think that's where I go back to this term that I use as psychic ownership. It creates an equitable amount of stress, right? I still feel the most stress, but because we're sharing everything and people are engaged and involved in the very nitty gritty of and, and see the finances, they see it. They worry. I had a guy that quit one time. He goes, Reed, this is the first job I ever had where I worried about it at night. And I'm like, that's that's by design. That's perfect. He's, I don't like that. And he quit. He was a machinist and he had worked at a big company his whole life. And he was a good machinist. He came and worked with us for two years and he, he left. He said, this is the first place I've ever worked where I worry about it at night. So that's the perfect example. And that was in probably 2007 or 2008. So it's very admirable. Personally, I think that you may be robbing yourself of some great talent. People that are great craftsmen, great they're great at what they do, and they're not great at thinking about the future of a business. And it sounds like you're saying that is true, but clearly you've been able to find people that at least can contribute a little bit or at least go along with, with that process. It's, it's a choice. I started a company. I wanted to create a culture of uh, where I felt like I came to work with a bunch of partners every day. And yeah, that's fantastic. Where I, I don't really want to be in a position where I have to figure everything out and tell everybody what to do. So I and think you don't feel you don't feel like that. You feel like your employees are somewhat they're self starters. They work together. They don't need so much top down. I absolutely feel that way. Yeah. In fact, we are recognized. Uh, by our peers for having that type of culture. I had the president of the NTMA come through, NTMA, National Tooling and Machining Association, come through here, Dave Tilstone, a number of years ago and said, made comment to that effect, wow, you've got a team there that really can run without you. And I had a tour come through last Friday that uh, I couldn't make it. 
I was supposed to be here at one o'clock. It was a, um, a prospect customer came through the, the owner and, and their lead engineer came through. And, and after the tour, I called the owner said, I'm sorry, I couldn't make it. I, I just could not get away from what I was doing. And he goes, no problem. Your team did great. They, you know, they showed me around. They obviously care a lot about what they do. We've got to do business together. So that's, that's incredible. I heard a podcast where they were talking about psychology of things like this. Um, if people are poor or come from a poor background, they are constantly preoccupied with money and numbers, etc. Versus people who come from a more privileged background, they're much more relaxed about it. And I could see that being a very interesting dynamic with the different people who work for you. You personally, when you were growing up, did your parents constantly worry about money? Were you worried about money? No, my dad's childhood was like that. They were scrapping, but my dad did really well. And uh, he gave us a great uh, stress-free childhood. We, we had a great middle-class childhood where we didn't worry about things. Um, my wife, on the other hand, did come from relative poverty. And uh, so, you know, your description, your psychological description of it is, it is so accurate. Maybe that's why she became an accountant. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, we're very complementary to each other. I'm, I'm the optimist that's always looking forward. And she's the pessimist who's always looking backwards. And that's, that's by training. You know, accountants by training have to look backwards to get everything that just happened in the past accounted for properly. And so Man, I would like to know a stat about accountants who came from money or relative comfort and who was watching every penny. I would very, be very curious to see like an economist type study. I'm sure there are. But, you know, we, just to wrap that up, she and I are very good for each other, even though our kind of opposite personalities sometimes make it hard for us to be together. You know, we're very complimentary. And, and uh, you know, I need her worry about it. Can't, we shouldn't do it. You know, wringing her hands approach. And she needs my, it's going to be great. Look at, look at what we can accomplish. We just got to, we just got to push forward and do it. Does your company have much debt? Our debt to equity ratio is a little bit over one. It's not that bad. I mean, we're. Because I think that certain employees would see that and they'd go, holy crap, we have debt. They do. And we report the the ratio and um, we just took on a lot of debt in the last couple months. We bought three machines. What'd you buy? We bought an NHX 5000 DMG Mori with a pallet pool. So we bought a, a 500 millimeter palletized uh, horizontal machine. Um, we bought a, an NLX 1500, a small lathe. Yeah, that's very popular, right? Yeah. And then we bought an NTX 2000. So it's a mill turn, two turning spindles, a milling spindle, and a lower turret. So a really good machine for complicated stuff. Right. And you, so it was a good investment. All good investments. We're, we're running the hell out of all of them. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit of current stuff. Uh, COVID-19 business fell off or were you one of the lucky ones? No, we were not one of the lucky ones. We had a very tough downturn. So 2009, tough, 2015 and 16, tough from an oil and gas perspective. But we had a 95% reduction in orders starting in May, June, July. So, I mean, we had almost nothing. So our, our big markets, we had really pivoted to aerospace and defense. And 
we were doing really well in commercial aerospace. And of course, commercial aerospace is one of the markets that just got roiled. So we had four and a half million dollars of backlog in commercial aerospace that all got canceled, every bit of it. We still had some legacy oil and gas work that was going strong. And if you remember right before, like two days before everything started shutting down because of COVID-19, the Russians and the Saudis decided to, you know, leave the spigots open and flood the market. And so oil tanked again. And so all that work that we had went away. So our, our two primary markets went to nothing. Wow. Wow. But we kept everybody through this. I mean, you kept everybody. We kept everybody. We, you know, uh, even I, though you didn't have like uh, even enough work for people to do, you kept everybody. We kept everybody only because, you know, I don't give credit to government policy very often, but the Triple P program did its thing, right? It, yeah, it, it was important for us as well. Yeah. Instead of our people getting laid off and collecting unemployment, they stayed and we painted the floors and cleaned the shop and, right. and they got their paycheck. And then by, you know, three months later, we started getting work again. We got a couple really cool projects and things started to turn around. That's great. I heard it, somebody saying the other day, you know, it's, it's a pity you would have thought maybe COVID-19 for our country could unite people, you know, like a war might unite people. It was either going to unite people or it was going to just contribute to divisiveness. I mean, it probably did a little bit of both, but sounds like for your company, it brought people together. Well, it, it did. I mean, and I don't know if it was COVID-19 or it was the fact that we just, the reaction to it. We have people of all political stripes in our company, and we do a pretty good job of not letting that enter into the workplace. It's a small company. We all kind of know each other well enough to know, but we don't let that affect our relationship. Do you choose not to talk about it? Absolutely, we choose not to talk about it. That, that's smart. I mean, maybe something could come of it, but it's unlikely that that would be helpful. Right. I don't, I don't, I can't see anything that good that would come from it. And so we, we're very apolitical and we do have weekly meetings where we talk about, Oh, come on. Don't you think it would be good? You would prove that you were right. <laughs> I could never, I don't presume to be right. I just know what I want and what I think. I mean, yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, I don't think anything good come from that. But we, we do talk about uh, what's happening politically in an apolitical way. We're, we talk about the election is going on, um, you know, people are on edge. So let's be extra aware of that or uh, interest rates and how th those things could affect our ability to get funding. And we talk about things like that, but we don't take any positions. That's good. So you have enough people for your demand right now? Or are you always hungry for more good new people? Well, when we're growing, yeah, when we're growing right now, we've been compared to our peers, and I keep track of half a dozen or a dozen shops in the area through our association. We have a chapter here, and everybody's struggling to find people. We've done pretty well in finding people, but it is hard it's harder for you. You've got like two qualifications. Not only do you have to be great and get along with everybody and be part of the culture, but you will have to at least play ball with this aspect. The young generation digs this stuff. The guy that I was telling you about who quit. Is they're asking questions. They want to know why you're doing things. They want to know why. Yeah. It's like, give me more. They're just so hungry. And they, this whole 
sense of purpose is so critical. It was the guy that I told you that quit late in his career. He was 50 something and he wanted to focus on his craft and that, that was okay. But the people we're hiring in this day and age are more often than not millennials, you know, 30 or younger. Very interesting. We've got a few guys that are older than that and they're our journeymen and they, and we're putting them to the test to do a lot of training, but. Uh, Very interesting. Uh, just a couple more questions. Um, when you hear the word happiness, what do you think of? I don't know. I'm, I'm usually a pretty happy guy taking my kids fly fishing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, no, that's uh, a great answer. That's a great answer. Do you have anything else to say to the people of the world? I don't know. That's a, that's a big one. I, I would say it's our job to find out what we're good at, what, what our contribution can be and, uh, and then do your best. From today's machining world, this is Swarfcast. If you like this podcast, please subscribe to the show on your favorite app and give us a five-star rating and a review. And don't forget to tell your friends about it. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and todaysmachiningworld.com to join our mailing list, read episode summaries, and watch extended interview videos. I'm Noah Graff. My occasional co-host is Lloyd Graff. Our managing editor is Ridgely Dunn. Our audio engineer is Patricio Garcia. For information on advertising or to submit an idea for a future podcast, follow the contact information at todaysmachiningworld.com. Music